0: But there's a way that you can offer time a trip. You gotta do something that you can get smarter at. You gotta do something you might just be a starter at. You'd better do something that you can get better at. Cause that's the thing that time will leave you with. they call a trade a trade like when they say that you should go and learn a trade the thing you do don't have to be to learn a trade just get something back from time for all it takes away it could be many things it could be anything it could be expertise in middle eastern traveling something to slowly sew to balance life's unraveling you have no choice you have to pay time's price but you can use the price to buy you something nice Something you can only buy with lots of time So when you're old you blow some whippersnapper's mind It might be researching a book that takes you seven years A book that helps to make the path we take to freedom clear And when you're done you see it started with a good idea One good idea could cost you thousands of your days But it's just time that you'd be spending anyway You have no choice, you have to pay time's price But you can use the price to buy you something nice so I've decided recently to try to trade more decently.
1: Talking about this. Yeah. Talking about this. Talking about. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about man. I'm talking about this. Yeah. I'm talking about this. KRKs, rocket shit, fuckin' rockets. This. Caveman, caveman, man. This is a fucked up life,
2: to- to- to-
1: but somebody. But Him. But you got it. Old English. This is a fucked up life, fuck, somebody's got live it. Guess that's me, so I'ma go ahead and give it Everything I've got to give, fuck around and I'ma Make the shots, cause I'm all about the list It's the final countdown, the chance you gotta take Profile. Maybe it, it is the, is the way it goes Maybe. down. Maybe you could take this, this. is all I'm trying to say. This is this not, not the end. This is not
3: the
1: end. No, this is not the end.
3: This could be the beginning
1: of something really great. This, this life that I live is really something special. This. This. For I talk, I like to hear an echo This type shit that I made right from the very get-go This is what I do, speak in different accents just like, like a gecko this, this is not some type of African safari this, this is more like getting murdered for your Atari This is the stuff I deal with on this day to day This is that shit that you know come from around the way This is that shit that keep you bopping all night This is that shit that make you say it's alright This is the jamming. You know that that is all that I really have to say about this Yes. Yes. This life uh, can be a beautiful thing. Like a two year old sitting, sipping, brewing, my swing. Try to get high. <laughs> my music is saying, uh, This is a love affair, dog. Don't ruin my flame. But if they can, they'll catch you in a sting. Try anything just to see you in the bang. Bang, gotta stay free. Keep using your wings. Fly <laughs> straight Philly shit. Boom, my teams. <laughs> this is not a game. <laughs> oh, no, no.
4: Welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it's Friday, February 8th, 2019. Thanks so much for listening in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco. We're on Ohlone land. Thank you for listening in. Perhaps it's your first time listening. Perhaps you've listened in before. Either way, uh, we appreciate you listening in. Uh, my name is Roman. be doing the show today. And I have to say I'm a little bit tired I am here though, grateful to be here. I had a uh, a long work day yesterday, occasionally um, on film sets it's long days, so I had a day where I got up at four, 4 o'clock in the morning, was out the door by 4.15, and then I got home at like a quarter to midnight. So I got some sleep, which is great, I had some very interesting dreams, which I will not discuss on the air, because uh, I guess they're personal, and wow, interesting dreams happen. And so, I am going to be playing some music today on the show, maybe a little bit more than usual. We will get to some news stories because there's a lot to talk about. And also at 1230, really excited, we will be talking with Samson McCormick. Samson is a stand-up comedian and an actor, and Samson has a new film that's coming out, and that will be playing on Saturday, February 16th at the Oakland LGBTQ Center, and it's called A Different Direction. So, we've posted the links up online if you're on Facebook, if you go to Mutiny Radio, if you go to the Weekly Review webpage, uh, we have the links up there so you can get your tickets to check out this film. I'm really excited about it and also excited to hear about it. So, that is some great news. Good things happening in the world, which is always important to remember. <sighs> I'll take a deep breath. Since I got home late last night, I didn't have a chance to really put together a music playlist for today, so I put it out to the universe, and I'm always appreciative of when folks can participate and add to the show. Things are a lot better when multiple people, many people get involved and add their perspectives and their opinions and their ideas. And so, I heard three songs I had not heard before that I played for you all, so big thank you to the folks who shared these suggestions. The first was from Donetta, and this was called Time Trades by Jeffrey Lewis. The second one was from Corey. The song was called Where the Palm Trees Turned to Pine Trees by Scorpio Moon, and you can check them out at scorpiomoon.bandcamp.com. And then Matt uh, suggested the last song, and that was called This by Caveman37. And you can check out that uh, SoundCloud by going to soundcloud.com forward slash mikhail-caveman-37. So yeah, new music. Uh, new to me anyway, maybe new to you as well. Grateful for these suggestions. And we will be playing some more music throughout the show. I'm waking up a bit. Haven't been doing a lot of caffeine lately. <sighs> Again, sharing some personal info here. I did have some green tea this morning, so hopefully that will keep me going. And would like just to have a nice, relaxing show. <sighs> I would imagine I might get a little bit upset when I do read the news, as I, as I often do. However, uh, we'll get through it. Because that's, that's what we do. And it would be great if I had the news stories up and ready to go. So I'm going to get to them very quickly as I'm talking with you. If you're new or unfamiliar with Mutiny Radio, I'll tell you a little bit about the station. We've been around for quite a while. Before it was known as Mutiny, it was known as Pirate Cat, and there are many shows that happen here every day of the week. Uh, there's news programs, there's music, there's comedy, there's spoken word, politics. Um, the kids over at the Boys and Girls Club have a show here as well. There's uh, an AA meeting, which is not on the radio, but it happens in the space, I believe, on Wednesday evening. So if you are in recovery and interested in a, a safe place to come, uh, check us out. The full schedule is available at mutinyradio.fm. And if you're interested in having a show here of your own, that's also a possibility. We give you or you get a you get 2 hours a week to do any type of show you like you have a there's a quick training on the boards it's pretty self-explanatory and you pay monthly dues, and then you get a show, which is pretty great. And if you're interested in getting advertising to help pay for the cost of the show, that, that's also a possibility. And also, the space is available for rentals. So if you'd like to do like a one-night show here, it could be a comedy show, music show, poetry reading, spoken word, anything you'd like. You get the live broadcast. You get it saved as an MP3. You, have, you can have a live audience in here. It's a pretty cool space. So check out fm. There we go. I do want to uh, say I'm grateful for all the folks who have uh, supported this show, either by listening, some folks uh, support financially. Uh, You can do that if you go to patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. Anywhere from a dollar a month is extremely helpful. And even just folks listening in, it's important to be able to be heard. And I really uh, do believe that it's crucial to have independent voices, especially when going over news and current events and have perspectives that aren't funded by the war machine. That's my perspective. I think a lot of other folks agree as well. To just to question the narratives that we hear, who's telling them, why they're telling them, and how they're funded. I like to go over history sometimes on the show, or perhaps things that we might not have heard uh, growing up, either in school or certainly through the media. We have a we have a phone call already. Let's let's check this out. Mutiny Radio.
5: Hey, is
4: this a radio station? Uh, It is, Gail. Hello.
5: Hey, hey, hey. I always call up and see various people, and they let me have some fun on their show. Sure. Oh, good. Some people don't like me to have fun.
4: Oh, well, I think everyone should have fun. What was that? I think everybody should have fun.
5: Well, I understand some people don't want to mess around with their shows, but if people let me mess around. I like to play. Mm-hmm. What are we going to play today? Well, as what as are I'm, you doing over there?
4: I'm having an interview, uh, Colin, at, at 1230, which is in a little bit. Um, and first I was going to read a story about how there was a general strike in Seattle. That's all right. I can talk fast. Okay. Who are you going to interview at 1230? Uh, Samson McCormick. He's a comedian and an actor. Who is that now? Samson McCormick.
5: Is he pretty big? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, what movie has he been in?
4: Well, there's a film that he's going to be talking about that is coming out soon called The Different Direction. And he also did a comedy special um, as well. So, yeah, we're going to hear more, more from him. Are you talking
5: about Golden Gate Park?
4: No, not talking about Golden Gate Park.
5: I thought you meant Comedy Day.
4: No, 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 not about Comedy Day. Samson uh, has toured around the country.
5: Uh-huh. Now that he's getting pretty big, how come he'll come back to your radio show? Did well, you know him before he got anywhere?
4: Um, I've known him for a few years, and he's been, you know, touring pretty regularly for the past few years. And he's based in the Bay yeah, Area.
5: Yeah,
4: hmm
5: Well, a lot of people, you know, uh, they start out with open mics and whatnot, and they don't come back.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: You know? So maybe this guy is more... Um, Less self center maybe, mm-hmm. and he's willing to come back to some like his roots or something. I don't know, mm-hmm. but, but I know. Um, let me see. I know they got Robin Williams to come back to Dirty Trips. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you familiar?
4: Yeah, that was a I went to Dirty Tricks many years ago. There. No, I was not there. then.
5: yeah. Night. Uh huh. Because that used to be the Holy City Zoo and they named it a different name. So it was too bad that he killed himself. Yeah. Because I, mean, I was gonna try to work my way to see if I can get his attention and see if he can get me into the movies. Sure. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. I mean, I was starting my, my uh, devious plan when he showed up there because I was tape recording him, you know, videoing him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, Robin had a reputation that he didn't want to uh, be mean. He was nice. Yes. So instead of looking at me and saying, what the hell are you doing, turn that off, he just said, who is that? Yeah. And, and people said, well, that's sweet Gail. And I said, well, why he's he sweet? I told him, you know. Uh but some other people taped him or video him and i understand they put it up on the computer the same night yeah and they made him take it down yeah because i guess robin had people sure yeah so i they thought i was gonna they were asking am i gonna put mine up on the computer that was not the reason why i videoed him i wanted to do it right uh but then the next week i went back to dirty tricks and then the people that worked there or whatever kind of gave me a little hell uh-huh. saying that they don't want me to be doing that. Uh-huh. I don't give you word for word, but they don't want me to be doing that because they figure, the way I understand it, they didn't want to miss Robin coming back again because he'd bring in business and that will mess up, you know. And I said, I'm not going to do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they didn't kick my ass or anything, but they let it uh, be known. I, the people that actually worked in the bar uh some lady was telling me uh you shouldn't be doing that or something because because uh, you know they wanted to come back in a bit anyway i always tell people that comedy is not a nice sweet game because i had people at least one person who wanted to kill me over this you know, I was sitting in the back of Dirty Tricks years ago. Uh-huh. I, you know me? I like to talk. And I wasn't even talking to this guy. And this guy became enraged and said, shut up. And he said he was going to take a pin and stab me in the neck.
6: Oh, Kill me. That's awesome.
5: Oh, yes. And he said, if you think I'm scared to do it, I'm going to go. You do have
7: the phone. The
5: owner is there. Oh, I got to go because it's a sheriff's phone and they need the phone. But sheriff Thanks phone. for letting me talk. I'll catch you another that time. Okay. Have go. Bye. Bye, Gail. I didn't know.
4: Oh, okay. Uh, Gail is our most frequent caller. Appreciate Gail calling in. Always learn quite a bit from Gail calling in. Okay. So... Before the phone call, I was going to get into a story, or at least read a little bit, because I know we're, um, we're having our interview with Samson start around 12.30. And uh, perhaps I'll read it a little bit later, because it is a longer article. and it, I think it's important to know our history, to know what actually happened, so we c- it can inform our decisions as to how we react now and what we do to organize. And also, it's really inspiring just to see what uh, what else has been done in the past that maybe we weren't taught in schools, a lot of us. So in 1919, there was a general strike in Seattle uh, when workers ran the city. So there's an article on uh, ROAR, which is Roarmag, ROARMAG.org. And this came out on February 6th. And exactly 100 years ago today, which was back a couple days ago, uh, 100 years ago on February 6th, workers in Seattle launched a general strike and ran their city for five days, placing it under direct democrat- democratic control. And the author of this article is Robert Ovetz. So we're going to get into that um, a little bit later. And also just wanted to, um, well, since I have like a little bit of time right now, I was going to also just promote a few upcoming events that folks can attend. Because we'll do that as well. So on February twelfth, which is this upcoming Tuesday, there is going to be um, the Center for Political Education is going to have an event: resisting the coup in Venezuela, emergency teaching. And I'm gonna read a little bit from their. Email here. Join the Center for Political Education for a discussion about the U.S.-backed coup attempt in Venezuela, the history of intervention in the region, and discussion about what groups in the Bay Area can do to respond to this crisis. So this is happening Tuesday, February 12th from 7 to 9 p.m. It's at the Eric Quesada Center for Culture and Politics, which is at 518 Valencia Street in San Francisco. And there's accessibility information provided below. The conversation will be led by Carolina Morales, queer Venezuelan organizer, and Roberto Lovato, a writer and journalist based at the San Francisco Writers Grotto. On January 23rd, Juan Guiat, Guaido, the relatively unknown head of Venezuela's natural assembly from the right-wing popular will party, declared himself acting president and rejected President Nicolas Maduro's swearing in to a second term. President Fuckface45, that's my words, not the words of the email, uh, and a coalition of regional allies in Latin America, anchored by right-wing governments in Brazil and Colombia, immediately recognized Guaido as the country's new president, it is now apparent That Guaido had been plotting this takeover with forces in the U.S., Colombia, and Brazil. The U.S. government has announced billions of dollars in new sanctions against the country's state-owned oil company, PDVSA, aimed at crippling Venezuela's economy, while cynically offering to provide humanitarian aid, and has appointed notorious Cold Warrior Elliot Abrams as the U.S. Special Envoy responsible for quote-unquote, restoring democracy in Venezuela. And we all know they're fucking, oh, I get so fucking angry because this happens time and time again, that idea of quote-unquote, restoring democracy, which means kind of them overthrowing leaders, which the U.S. has a pretty, that's a reputation that the U.S. has. I'm so angry. Anyway, okay, not yet 1230 and I'm already angry. Great. Uh, Venezuela is undoubtedly experiencing an unprecedented political and economic crisis. The response from much of the left within the United States has largely been one of confusion and silence. Now is the time to come together, break the silence, and take action to resist the coup. So for accessibility information for folks who are able to attend, 518 Valencia is a wheelchair accessible space. We will do our best to provide a reduced scent space and will designate a fragrance Free seating area. Please support our efforts to support the participation of community members with chemical sensitivities by coming to the event as low or no scent as you are able. This event will be recorded and available for viewing remotely. Excuse me. To request language interpretation, CART tran- transcription, or access other needs, please contact center at politicaleducation.org by Sunday, February 10th. And you can also donate to the CPE. And if you find CPE online, you could also check out a lot of other work that they do and other upcoming events. So we had a, an interview with uh, Rachel Herzing, who's there um, last year, I believe, and has a really we had a really good conversation and lots to learn. So again, check out the Center for Political Education, and this specific event is happening Tuesday, February twelfth, twenty nineteen. All right, we should be expecting a call in in a little bit, and another. <sighs> Another story that's um, wanted to get to as well is people. Oftentimes, the recurring themes of the show are people in positions of power who do things to harm us, which is just pretty much what most people in positions of power do, to be honest. However, occasionally there's someone who has a conscience and does something, does the right thing. So, on February fifth, it was announced, like in the, the AP, which is a pretty you know moderate. A news source uh, reported that the New Mexico governor has pulled National Guard troops from the border. This is written by uh, Morgan Lee. Uh, the governor of New Mexico ordered the withdrawal of the majority of the state's National Guard troops from the U.S. border, with Mexico on Tuesday, in a move that challenges Fuckface 45. Again, my word, not the words in the article. Fuckface's description of a security crisis, Governor Michelle Leon Grisham announced the partial withdrawal shortly before 45's State of the Union address. Her Republican predecessor deployed National Guard troops to the border in April 2018 at 45 Suggestion and 118 remained there before Tuesday's reversal. New Mexico will not take part in the president's charade of border fear-mongering by misusing our diligent National Guard troops, Lujan Grisham said in a statement. At the same time, the governor said a small contingent around a dozen guardsmen will remain in the southwestern corner of the state to assist with humanitarian needs in a remote corridor for cross-border immigration. She also mobilized state police to assist local law enforcement. Mm -hmm. I recognize and appreciate the legitimate concerns of residents and officials in southwestern New Mexico, particularly Hidalgo County, who have asked for our assistance as migrants and asylum seekers continue to appear at their doorstep, the governor said. At remote stretches of New Mexico's border with Mexico, large numbers of Central American migrants have surrendered in recent months to U.S. authorities. The perils of the state's desert borderlands have been highlighted with the deaths of Guatemalan immigrant children Felipe Gomez Alonso and Jacqueline Call while while in U.S. custody in New Mexico. And there's a little bit more information as well. And the last paragraph on Tuesday, she also directed 25 troops from other states, Arkansas, Kansas, Kentucky, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Wisconsin to withdraw from the Mexico border. Well, one way, first step in terms of getting rid of the border is to get rid of folks at the border and enforcing it in one way or another. So, somewhat of a positive spin on a situation that shouldn't even exist in the first place. However, grateful for that to happen. Okay. We're going to take a bit of a music break. I'm going to get my thoughts together, perhaps. And we'll be back in a bit. Stay tuned.
8: Whether long-range weapon or suicide bomb or wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether you're sorrow son on or BBC one, this information is a weapon of mass destruction. You could a Caucasian or a poor Asian. Racism is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether inflation or globalization, fear is a weapon of mass destruction. My dad came into my room holding his hat. I knew he was leaving. He sat on my bed, told me some facts, son. I have But you keep calling on me, you and your sister be brave, my little soldier. And don't forget all I told you. You're the mister of the house, now remember this. And when you wake up in the morning, give your mama a kiss. Then I had to say goodbye. In the morning woke mama with a kiss on each eyelid. Even though I'm only a kid, certain things can't be hit. Mama grabbed me, held me like I was made to go but left her the story's untold I said Mama it'll be alright When daddy comes home Tonight There's a long a suicide bomb, a wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction Whether you saw a World or BBC One, misinformation is a weapon of mass destruction You could have Caucasian or Rapor Asian Racism is a weapon of mass destruction Whether inflation or globalization Fear is a weapon of mass destruction A weapon of mass destruction we need to find courage overcome inaction is, inaction is a weapon of mass destruction inaction is a weapon of mass destruction inaction is a weapon of mass destruction my story stops here let's be clear this scenario is happening everywhere and you ain't going to nirvana or farvana you coming right back here to live out your karma with even more drama than previous. Seriously, seriously, just how many centuries have we been waiting for someone else to make us free? And we refuse to see that people overseas suffer just like we. Bad leadership and egos unfettered and free to feed them the people they're supposed to lead. I don't need the people to pray and wait for the Lord to make it all straight. There's only now i do it right. I don't want your daddy Leave your home tonight whether long-range weapon or suicide bomb, or wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether your soul away sun or BBC One, misinformation is a weapon of mass destruction. Look at the Caucasian or Rapport Asian. Racism is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether inflation or globalization. Fear is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether Halliburton, Enron or anyone green weapon of mass destruction. You need to find courage. Overcome in It's a weapon of mass destruction. In action. It's a weapon of mass destruction.
6: In action. It's a weapon of mass destruction.
4: And welcome back to the Weekly Review. I am joined now on the phone by Samson McCormick. Samson, thank you for calling in.
9: Thank you for having me. You know, I think this is maybe the second or third time that I've been on, and even though I haven't actually been in the studio, we always connect in a way that makes me feel like I'm actually in there with you,
4: so I'm so excited. Yeah, yeah, it's really good to hear your voice. I've been following your career, and I'm really excited about the, the new film that you have coming out. Thank you. Yeah, so it's um, it's called a different direction, and I was hoping you could speak a little bit about that and tell our listeners uh, what it was like making it, and uh, give give yeah, give folks a perspective about it.
10: Oh
9: Lord, okay, so this might be kind of loaded, but I'm gonna make it sweet for y'all. Oh please, yeah. So uh, of course, it's this film is it's a different direction in a, in a lot of ways because of course you know I am a comic and I've been doing that for almost two decades. Wow, um, I know. Um, and, and so as long as as long as I keep looking good, you know, I'm gonna keep up the schedule that I do have. And it's just, you know, very important to create our narratives and share our narratives as people of color. As LGBTQ people is um, anyone who society looks at as existing out outside of the margin or oppressed people, uh, which is why I wanted to start creating more scripted pieces, and uh, so so that's one reason for me why it was called a different direction, and it's also called a different direction because uh, the the protagonist of the story. Uh, His name is Frankie Bailey. He is a black gay 30-something who makes his living as a photographer and a writer. And, um, you know, of course, you know, uh, for a lot of folks, you know, it's a lot of folks who check to check or gig to gig or, you know, payday to payday, and he's one of those people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, while dealing with that and also dealing with you know trying to date and all these other different things he's confronted with one, with one of the biggest challenges of his life which is uh choosing uh mental and emotional health for himself um you know a lot of us we engage family members who can be toxic and you know it doesn't mean that they're bad people mm-hmm. but it does mean that sometimes we need to step away and 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 and, and put our fingers on our triggers and, and see you know, what things we're affected by and how we can heal and how we can get better and, and have and expect better relationships.
4: Yes. Yeah, that's a, there's a lot right there.
9: Oh, it is. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so what was the, the filmmaking process like for you this time?
9: Oh, my God, it was tedious. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm the type of, I think I have a touch of ADD. Mm. you know so I I like to like start doing a project I like to finish it quickly and get on to the next thing yes with the with the film you know I'm also the uh, the executive producer of it so I had to oversee everything to make sure it drove me crazy (laughs) in the best way yes Um, you know making sure that everybody was was on set at a certain time and and working with everybody's schedules the, the film as it is now is a lot deeper uh, than the original script, because I had to go back in and rewrite the original script. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the story got a lot heavier, and so it's just really engaging with the cast to make sure that everybody delivered a compelling story, um, delivered a story that was authentic and something that people will be able to leave out of the theaters and talk about. Yes. Um, maybe even see and be able to you know, um, see themselves in and, and, and choose better for themselves mm-hmm. and the hardest part besides all of that was developing the lead character who, I play one of the lead characters who's Frankie mm-hmm. and um, I'm a, I'm a bit more assertive than Frankie is, you know, I don't yeah. mind telling people how I feel and, mm-hmm. and speaking up about things. Frankie is a uh, very reserved and soft-spoken um and and he doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, yeah, And he also dealt very heavily with depression during the film. Hmm. Um, and so while we were filming, I had to carry that character around, yeah, um, and and I think that it, I mean, I'm already a very loving and compassionate person, uh, and and I strive to be more of that every day. But feeling that and really sitting with those feelings and exploring what that felt like really, me understand a lot more my friends who live with anxiety who live with depression who live with you know a a host of mental and, and emotional challenges and it helped me to really understand it a lot better because I had to sit with that character until we got finished filming.
4: Yes. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like quite a lot. And you mentioned something about uh, visibility, which I think is so crucial and so important that you know films like this are made, so folks do have characters that they can identify with that might not normally be seen in other TV and film.
9: Absolutely. You know, and it's it's very important because uh, I've I seen the change. You know, like when I started. Uh, you know, comedy years ago, like there weren't that many queer comedians. There were definitely no queer male comics of color. Mm-hmm. Um, very, a very, very small, teeny tiny handful on a diet. You know, it was it was very, very small, and um, and I've just seen the 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 impact of having a small but mighty group who were determined to get it film because, you know, I think that we both can agree. Um, You know, neither one of us on this phone are, are, you know, straight and white, (laughs) you know. um, And we know what it was like, you know, figuring ourselves out whenever we started figuring out what it was that was different about us and Mm. wanting resources to be able to figure out what that was. And I think one of the first things that you do is you look around and and looking around you do look at the television and you don't see anybody who's living your story yeah you don't see any stories that are relatable and if you do it's usually it's us being victims mm. and you know i got tired of looking at television and always seeing us you know um playing down low men who are out cheating on their families or whatever mm-hmm. um or you know uh someone who's living with hiv or aids and distressed by the fact that they are so they go out and affect everybody else. You know, it's always some um, outrageous narrative that's not authentic. Yeah. And and you know, and now that I'm in Hollywood and, and the times that I have come down, I've been in a lot of the rooms and a lot of the people who are telling these stories don't know anything about living those stories because they're not the identity.
6: Right, right.
9: And it's 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 the same thing now with trans Actors and actresses. Yes, uh, there's a, a trending story right now about someone who's a straight white male, I believe, who's playing a trans woman in a in a uh, in a new movie that's coming out. Yeah, and there and are inf-
4: plenty. Yeah, unfortunately, that yeah. happens a lot, and it's really um, awful.
9: Yeah, it's it's disgusting, and for me also, as someone who also has to do the business side, because there aren't people who are. You know, there aren't that many agencies who are picking up, you know, queer artists mm-hmm. who, you know, overlook, you know, black talent and things like that. Um, for me, it's important to employ queer artists. Yes. Because if you look at films, and I love, 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 love Moonlight. I mean, it's... Oh, yeah. I wish. Did you see Moonlight? Yes. It a oh, great yes. Film?
4: Yes, it was.
9: You know, I I I kind of envy a little bit. I kind of envy some of the youth who are queer now. Even though, you know, let's not get it twisted. It's still not any easier to be queer now than right. it was ever. Uh, but I envy them because I wasn't able to speak into a theater when I was fifteen and go see a Moonlight. Yes,
6: yes, I mean,
9: imagine what that would have been like. Oh yeah, uh, to, to to be able to have that as a part of our experience. Um, and so I think that that was great. Um, and 10 years from now, we're going to be hearing from someone who was 15 at the time or 14 at the time who talked about how, you know, maybe they were living in some small southern town and they knew something was different about them, but they related to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a plus. Now, the negative, um, and I love Terrell. You know, Terrell is a friend who uh, was one of the creators of Moonlight and very... Um, who was the screenwriter for it, um, are great black gay men. Um, but one issue that I had with it is nobody who played in that cast is openly gay, right. uh, openly queer, yeah. except for Janelle Monae. Yeah. Um But there are plenty of black, I mean, it's still not a lot, but you can easily come to the community and, and look online and ask around and find Lat gay talent to play these characters, right? So for me, that's a big thing is creating these things so that we can be in them.
4: Yes, yeah, that's so important.
9: You yeah. know, they're our stories.
4: Yes, yes. So also, you know, along the lines with like with writing them too, so the characters are then authentic.
9: Yes, yes, and 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 then sometimes you go out and you realize that you missed something. Um, and and so a lot of the a lot of the process was um, just really sitting with the story, mm-hmm. um, you know. And and there are bits of the story that are connected to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love my family, but I I don't think that I had the most healthy experiences with my family, especially like with my mom. Mm. And um, you know, we all want to have healthy relationships, no matter. Um, no matter what happens or what your experiences are, you want those people in your life but sometimes it's just not possible. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's you're not able to because if, if, if everybody hasn't done their mental or emotional work or gone in and, and, and dealt with their trauma. Yes. You know, um, which trauma there is generational trauma. Yes. Know, things happen to our grandparents that happen to our parents and they pass it down to us. Right and we somebody has to go, okay, well, I'm gonna change and this change is gonna start with me. Yes, yes. And so uh, the, the film hopefully will encourage people to, to acknowledge that part, um, to acknowledge that, you know, it's very easy for us to be 25 and 30 and 35 and 40 years old, sometimes older, and, and still have toxic relationships with relatives, mm-hmm. and it's nothing to be embarrassed about.
4: Yes. You yeah. know,
9: um, there, it's, it's never too late to acknowledge trauma it's never too late to acknowledge needing to get out of or change a negative or toxic or unhealthy relationship and to move towards health. So that's what the film is about. Wow. Um, and and I'm proud of it, too, because, you know, I'm always, like, doing doing humor, but this is, there are funny moments in the film, for sure, mm-hmm. but um, it's the first uh, dramatic piece that I've done in a long time.
4: Oh, it's so exciting. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Yes, and we were lucky, too. We were lucky. We
9: have uh, uh, Daryl Stevens from Noah's Ark and and Boy Culture. He plays an incredible character. I wish we all had a character like him in our lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, He plays the best friend to my character, uh, and, and that character's name is Travis Mitchell. And, um, you know, he shows up and he's like, hey, you know, you're going to have to start taking accountability for how you feel, how you're showing up in your own life, and start making better decisions. And, uh, you know, the the character, uh, Frankie's, my character's kind of down and out and, you know, down on his luck, you know. And um, in the black church, they call it broke, busted, and disgusted. That's what they call it. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and Travis shows up and he, you know, helps him out with food and talks to him and, and you know and and helped lift them back up and we were also very lucky um i don't know what we did to deserve this um, but we were very lucky to also get the legendary uh, miss laura hayes ah. to play uh the mother character and, and uh miss laura is um one of the original queens of comedy mm-hmm. uh, she appeared on deaf comedy jam comic view martin uh, you know, all of those shows, classic iconic shows from the 90s, um, you know, and so she wanted to do this film and so we're really lucky that we got her and she absolutely delivered too. Oh,
4: that's, that's great. Excellent. Wow.
9: So it's, all I can say is I just want people to see it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's a story that I feel like can help build a bridge too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it's some stories, you know, people classify them as gay stories or queer stories. Mm -hmm. And one of the lead characters, of course, is LGBT, but this is a story I feel like, you know, heterosexual black people should see. Mm -hmm. Um, I think everybody should see it because everybody will be able to see themselves in one of those characters. And, you know, for some parents, you know, sometimes if we don't have anybody, you know, to help hold our parents accountable the yeah. other people accountable, nobody's there to say, Hey, this is what this relationship looks looks like. So mm-hmm. maybe you know, maybe even some parents will be able to see that and say, Wow, like I that's the way I treat my kids mm. and um and and and, and, and 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 strive for better.
4: Yes. Well art art has that, that power to do. To do that it absolutely
9: does and so it's and especially in this socio-economic climate now mm. socio-political climate now um, is just very important for and and this is my prayer is that even for television that we get back to classic you know um, classic genuinely funny family comedies. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be like it was in the 90s with the two parents and the kids and the dog and it, because we all know families don't look like that.
6: Mm-hmm.
9: Um, not all families. right? Um, but I really am, am hoping that, you know, we get back to stories that bring families and people together. Um, I mean, it's one thing because, because of Netflix and things like that. You don't have to be home at 8 o'clock to see a certain show and sit around in the living room with your family the way you had to yeah. in the 90s and yeah. the 80s. But I really would like to see more work that brings us together and allows us to see ourselves in stories that we, and stories and ways we, we usually wouldn't see ourselves in, and, and relate to other people, and, and create really important dialogue. And um, and I feel like a different direction is one of those pieces. Um, and so, yeah, and we'll go from there. I mean, it's. I'm also working on several other things right now, but we're going to see what people think about a different direction. I believe people will will receive it well.
4: Excellent. Oh, well, it's it's so good to hear your voice, and really excited for this film, and also just to see what's next.
9: Yes, I'm excited too, and uh, I shared the uh So it will be. It's a special exclusive. Uh, Black History Month premiere screening It has not screened anywhere else So this is exclusively Exclusively for my Bay Area family because uh, The Bay Area is awesome And I love my family there It's a a very exclusive Private sneak peek Performance at this uh, film And it'll be uh, February The 16th at the Oakland LGBT Center at uh, 7pm Um we're also going to show another film that I did a couple of years ago called I Live Here, and it is a, another kind of political. This one is a, a political piece, um, and it was nominated for an Academy Award. So I'm very oh, excited wow. about that, too. And um, that will be showing for a different direction. Um, they're both short films. They're both about 20 minutes long. Um, and then we'll have like a, a quick Q&A and meet and greet and um and it's going to be just a lovely evening an evening of family and togetherness
4: ah excellent and it looks like it's uh the film's uh, starting at 7 p.m is that correct yes
9: yeah, so uh you know the doors will be around 6 45 and okay. we're going to start everything around seven o'clock so oh, excellent um you know it's, it's going to be a great way to spend early, uh, that part of the that part of saturday evening i don't know i guess it's it's early, depends on what you do on a Saturday night. You know, me, I like to go home and rest my little tired bones. Yeah, so So, uh, you know, so it really depends. You know, everybody will be able to get out. Um, you know, on time, I always tease the lesbians that come out to see me, like the older lesbians that come out to see me. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause they're like, this isn't gonna run on too late, is it? And I'm <laughs> like, no, I promise you, will be back in bed by 9.30. They're like, even that's too late, uh-huh. you know, so. uh it's it's still everybody will be able to come in, and if they want to go out and have drinks afterwards, they'll be able to. If people want to go back, get back in their bed. They'll be able to. Um, it's just going to be it's going to be just a really special evening, um, and I really want as many people to come out and support it because it's you know it's important that our community shows up for our our things, Absolutely. our stories, our narratives.
4: Absolutely. Well, looking forward to that. And I also want to encourage uh, listeners to check out your website, which is uh, SamsonComedy.com. and that has a lot more information as well as info about yes. a tough act to follow, which I saw which was great as well.
9: Yes, yes, yes. Uh Samsoncomedy.com, S A M P S O N Comedy.com, and also on Instagram, I give a lot of sneak treats on Instagram too. I'm on Instagram at Samson McCormick, S A M P S O N M C C O R m-i-c-k and uh i dropped little little short clips from the film on uh on there um and so people can see that and we're going to be doing like a lot of behind the scenes uh things from the screenings and this is going to be really great it's really great stuff and um you know i believe i've created a, a great catalog of work and i would like to share that with as many people as possible um and especially with comedy, you know, it's important to uh, support comics who aren't mean, who aren't cruel, yes. you know, who do good humor that is funny, yes. but it up- uplifts you and makes you feel great when you leave the theater. Right, and it right. speaks to our issues, and, and I believe that deserves support. And so I work hard so that people see it, and they feel it, and they want to support it enthusiastically.
4: Excellent. Uh, well, thank you so much for calling in, and looking forward to seeing you on the 16th.
9: Yes, I'm looking forward to seeing you, and again, thank you for uh, having me back on the show.
4: Oh, you're very welcome, anytime.
9: All right, look forward to seeing you, and thank you again, and and most of all, everybody, I just want to encourage everybody to take care of themselves, each other, and be well.
4: Yes, yes, indeed. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Samson.
9: All right, thank you.
4: All right, take care. You too. Thanks. Bye.
6: Bye bye.
4: Uh, Big thank you to Sampson for calling in. And again, if you'd like to check out more info, check out SampsonComedy.com. And that's S-A-M-P-S-O-N Comedy.com. And again, the film will be playing the exclusive Bay Area debuts happening Saturday, February 16th at the Oakland LGBTQ Center at 7 p.m. There is a Facebook invite. We've also posted this on the Mutiny Radio page, as well as the Weekly Review page on Facebook. And there's a Facebook event invite for a different direction, exclusive Bay Area pre screening so it's again that's february excuse me yes february 16th It's saturday at 7 p.m at the oakland lgbtq center which is at 3207 lakeshore avenue in oakland so please do get your tickets there's links to get tickets uh, on facebook cool all right so again big thank you to samson for calling in uh, we're gonna take a bit of a music break and we'll be back in a little bit stay tuned
11: have been Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline but on the Che Guevara highway filling up with gasoline Fidel Castro's brother spies a rich lady who's crying over luxury's disappointment so he walks over and he's trying to sympathise with her but he thinks that he should warn her that the third world just around the corner In the Soviet Union a scientist is blinded by the resumption of nuclear testing and he is reminded that Dr Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell hurdle In the cheese pavilion and the only noise I hear is the sound of someone stacking chairs and mopping up spilled beer and someone asking questions and basking in the lights and the Minutes of the fanzine right mixing pop and politics he asks me what the use is I offer him embarrassment and my usual excuses while looking down the corridor out to where the fan is waiting I'm looking for the great equal world Jumble sales are organised and pamphlets have been posted Even after closing time there's still parties to be hosted You can be active with the active Bye. And cut out the middle bags
4: to the weekly review. Again, big, big thank you to Samson McCormick for calling in. Really really looking forward to seeing a different direction. Again, that's February 16th at the Oakland LGBTQ Center. So we're going to go back to the story I was uh, going to read earlier. And this is from RoarMag.org. and This is an event I hadn't heard of until very, very recently, so I thought I would share that with uh, listeners out there. It's important to know what's happened before and what we can do in the future. So, title of the article, When Workers Ran the City, the 1919 Seattle General Strike. And this came out on February 6, 2019. It was written by Robert Ovetz. Exactly 100 years ago, on February 6th, uh, workers in Seattle launched a general strike and ran their city for five days, placing it under direct Democratic control. For the U.S. working class, the end of World War I was a time of both danger and opportunity. On October 25th, 1919, The Nation magazine made an extraordinary claim that 1919 was the year of the revolt of the rank and file, a time in which authority cannot cannot longer be imposed from above, it comes automatically from below. This is the revolution. The nation was not that far off. Revolution was in the air, both in the U.S. and around the world, and workers engaged in general strikes and factory occupations to make it a reality. In the U.S., the climax of the wartime class struggle lay in Seattle, where workers launched a general strike and, for five days, took control over the city." Revolutions also swept Mexico and Russia. A workers' uprising erupted in Germany. A revolutionary government came to power in Hungary. Socialists took over Vienna. Insurgencies spread throughout the collapsed Ottoman Empire. Workers took over factories in Italy and the Netherlands. Independence movements were in the ascent in many colonies. And a general strike took hold in Winnipeg, Canada. Wartime wildcat strikes had threatened to disrupt war production. Uh, The author's book, When Workers Shot Back, Class Conflict from 1877 to 1921, documents the U.S. government's response to the strike by introducing a temporary labor planning policy to arbitrate labor conflicts. This arbitration scheme, a prototype for later New Deal labor relation relation laws, actually uh, fed the strike wave as workers further expanded newfound gains by continuing to organize escalating their tactics expanding mass support and circulating their struggles workers radical actions were on the rise between September 1917 and April 1918 workers carried out general strikes in six cities from 1915 to 1917 the number of strikes tripled to a stunning 4359 and the number of workers on strike rose by 250 percent to 1.2 million by 19 19- 1919, the number of strikes leveled out at about 3,400, but the number of workers who struck quadrupled to 4.1 million. The November 11, 1918 armistice unleashed a coordinated multi-pronged rollback of the wartime gains. Militant workers, the industrial workers of the world, IWW, socialists, anarchists, and other dissidents were violently suppressed and many hundreds were deported. Pay increases and shortened work hours were rolled back and many thousands of industrial workers were thrown out of their jobs. But workers were not slowing down. The Seattle wartime strike endured, as did militancy in the steel industry where workers organized a general strike in 1919, and the coal mines which would be rocked by strikes and armed worker rebellions for a few more years. In February 1919, workers in Seattle shut down the city and reopened it under worker self-management. For just a few days, the general strike demonstrated that workers would tactically escalate to establish a vibrant living example of what CLR James called a post-capitalist future in the present. On January 6, 1919, nearly two months after the armistice, 16,000 members of the Marine Workers' Affiliation went on strike against a Shipbuilding Labor Adjustment Board, SLAB, arbitration ruling intended to divide and conquer the shipping industry workers. By January 21st, the strike had grown to 35,000 skilled shipbuilders and other shipyard workers. The workers were protesting the continuing wartime wage controls by which the international unions, the U.S. Navy, and U.S. Emergency Fleet Corporation, which was controlled by big business, collaborated to set wages under the authority of the slab, often awarding the highest wage increases to skilled workers. Although the world, the, excuse me, <laughs> although the war was over, Slap continued to assert control over wages and issued an issued an award without a raise. In response, the shipyard workers voted to begin the strike on February 6th. Soon, their proposal to the Seattle Central Labor Council, SCLC, to take over the shipping industry was expanded into taking over control of the entire city. With some of the SCLC leadership out of town to plan a national action on behalf of San Francisco labor leaders Tom Mooney and Warren K. Billings, who were jailed on trumped-up charges of setting off explosives at a 1916 pro-war parade, The Central Labor Council asked its affiliated local unions to poll members about whether they would join a general strike to support the shipyard strike. Over the next two weeks, 110 v- locals voted overwhelmingly to join the general strike. Among those who voted to support the strike were the longshoremen defying the president of the International Longshoremen's Association, who had threatened to rescind their charter if they went on strike. This general strike that took place over the next several days was the fruit of years of organizing of both workers and supporters throughout the area. The quadrupling of union membership between 1915 and 1918 had made Seattle a strong union town where even the IW. WW and AFL Metal Trades Council worked together. Unlike other general strikes of the era, the Seattle General Strike was more than a show of workers' power to disrupt production. The Seattle General Strike was a demonstration of the power of workers to take over and reorganize both production and reproduction and to lessen the exploitation of the working class by subordinating production to social needs rather than profit. The SCLC formed a General Strike Committee, GSC, composed of three elected representatives from each local union that had joined the strike which would run the city for the entire duration of the strike. The GSC became the parallel system of worker self-governance, running wet garbage collection, homes for the destitute, a fire fire brigade, and uh, public safety and publicity. Its operations were effective and efficient. Milk delivery drivers organized distribution to 35 neighborhood milk stations and purchased milk from small dairies. Food workers served 30,000 meals per day to the community in 21 cafeterias. Critical services, such as hospitals, were kept in operation and continued to be supplied with linen and fuel. There was a semblance of cross-racial alliances illustrated when the Japanese Labor Association of Hotel and Restaurant Workers voted to join the strike. The GSC organized 300 volunteers for a labor war veterans guard, which operated a community watch that used persuasion rather than force or the threat of violence and served as a counterweight to elite vigilante groups. The watch successfully kept the skid row bars closed and troubles to a minimum. It was so effective that, during the general strike, the redundant chief of police said no further police were needed because the unions were providing their own security. And Major General Morrison attested to the peacefulness and orderliness of the city. No one was arrested in retaliation to the strike during this period, and despite pressures to prosecute strikers under state criminal syndicalism laws, prosecutors were unable to charge even one person with a seditious speech or act. Workers running the city had such power that employers and government officials, including commissioners, the mayor, and the Port of Seattle, approached the GSE for permission to resume limited services or business operations. During the leadership. Excuse me. Diffusing the leadership of the strike among 110 local unions also reduced the vulnerability of the general strike to the threat of repression. In fact, the GSC wasn't even the leader of the strike. It was more like the coordinating body. The Seattle Union Record, the General Strike Committee's daily newspaper, explained the tactics and strategy of the general strike. They are singularly alike in nature. Quiet mass action, the tying up of industry, the granting of exemptions, until gradually the main activities of the city are being handled by the strike committee. The Seattle Union record summed up the qualitative difference between a strike, which applies leverage to shut down production, and the general strike they had launched which took over production to reorganize and subordinate it to social needs. Not the withdrawal of labor power, but the power of the strikers to manage will win the strike. Labor will not only shut down the industries, but labor will reopen under the management of the appropriate trades, such activities as are needed to preserve public health and public peace. If the strike continues, labor may feel led to avoid public suffering by reopening more and more activities under its own management. The workers' paper provided a daily source of information that flowed outward from the GSC to the strikers and their supporters and back again with news and information to the GSC. Strikers produced and distributed the newspaper. Although its production was centrally organized and subject to possible disruption, it was less valuable than the telegraph or telephone, both owned by corporations. The centralized horizontal organization of the GSC and the use of the newspaper to establish two-way communication between the strike coordinators and the rank-and-file were an expression of the lessons strikers had learned over the previous decades about coordinating a worker's insurgency. The Seattle strikers replaced the elite controlled local government with one run by the workers and the wider community. The GSC supplanted the dominant system of organizing life in the city according to representative democracy and capitalism with a new system of direct self governance and a needs based production plan. The strikers did not waste any effort asking for changes or contending for more power. Rather, the strikers took over and ran their workplaces and communities, deciding what they needed, how much work was required to provide it, and with whom they would share both the work and output of their labor their general strike was qualitatively different from any other strike general or otherwise they did not shut down production or demand concessions from the factory owners as was common during world war I. That would have left the capitalist relations of production in place. Rather, the workers made the decisions themselves, shifting the strike beyond just disrupting capitalist relations and instead carving out a short-lived autonomous space where they could exercise their multiple visions of what life could be like. The Seattle General Strike is unique in American history, perhaps more analogous to the 1871 Paris Commune or the seizure of vast estates by the Mexican revolutionaries over the preceding decade. The Seattle General Strike shows what is possible when workers nonviolently seize control of the means of production and reproduction. The storm clouds of, of repression began forming over Seattle rapidly. The State Attorney General and the University of Washington President, Henry Suzalo, who was also the chairman of the State Council of Defense, called upon Secretary of War Newton Deal Baker Jr. to send in troops. Nearly 1,000 sailors and marines were deployed around the city. They were joined by U.S. Army troops from Camp Lewis, who set up machine guns, although it is unclear exactly at whom they were pointed. Sazalo used his university's Reserve Officer Training Corps students as paid, uniformed guards. The private Kiwanis Service Club, whose membership included professionals and elites, advised its members to stock up on arms in preparation for a fight. Seattle Mayor Hansen added 600 more police, armed 2,400 special deputies, and requested that Governor Lister sent in the National Guard. (sighs) With his forces in place, the mayor issued an ultimatum for the GSC to end the strike by February 8th. As the strikers considered the mayor's ultimatum, the old order reappeared at gunpoint. The business newspaper, The Star, began to distribute its paper again, guarded by police mounted on trucks with machine guns. The GSC gathered and voted 13-1 to 1 to end the strike. But after a dinner break, the GSC returned and reversed itself, voting to continue the strike. The American Federation of Labor, AFL, intervened to break the general strike, demanding that workers of its affiliated locals return to work. The AFL leadership understood that the backbone of the Seattle strike was formed by local unions defying their own international unions and violating its contracts with employers. Rather than serving the larger class interests of their fellow workers, the AFL unions had their contracts and organizational uh, prerogatives at stake. The AFL's influence over its members was mixed at best. The streetcar workers returned to work, but offered to go back out when the GSC called on them. The Teamsters also returned to work, but they were expected to vote in favor of a strike again. When the GSC voted to end the strike on February 11th, the shipyard workers continued their strike. In October 1919, Longshoremen in Seattle refused to load a shipment of 50 freight cars containing guns manufactured by Remington Arms for the counter-revolutionary white Russians fighting the Soviet government. In the meantime, the the labor printing plant and the offices of the local Socialist Party and IWW Hall were raided and 39 Wobblies were arrested. The general strike was broken by the combined force of capital, the state, and the AFL, a combined force that the striking workers could not fight. The Seattle general strike demonstrated that informal groups of workers building counter power on the shop floor could go beyond disrupting production, democratically reorganizing and redirecting it to serve human needs. The general strike established workers as the power holders in the city. Self-organized workers shifted control almost imperceptibly by reappropriating the existing resources and wealth and redirecting it for the needs of reproduction. The genius of the workers' tactics and strategy was to avoid direct constant contestation over power. Such a conflict would have inevitably meant the asymmetrical use of force and violence that the workers could not expect to win in one city alone. As the History Committee of the General Strike Committee wrote in March 1919, our experience will help us understand the way in which events are occurring in other communities all over the world, where a general strike, not being called off, slips gradually into the direction of more and more affairs by the strike committee until the business group, feeling their old prestige slipping, turns suddenly to violence, and there comes the test of force. When the efforts by the insurgents towards self-governance during a general strike take on the form of a dual power structure, it effectively reorganizes society. Reappropriating the means of production and reproduction displaces the existing institutions that govern both the society and the economy. In this situation, a general strike takes on revolutionary aspects insofar it flips the traditional power balance, disarming elites while empowering the general population. The workers managed to take over control of Seattle without the use of violence. The Seattle Union record explained the reason for the absence of violence. Apparently, in all cases, there is the same singular lack of violence, which we noticed here. The violence comes not with the shifting of power, but when the counter-revolutionaries try to regain the power, which inevitably, and almost without their knowing, it passed from their group. Violence would have come in Seattle if it had come, not from the workers, but from the attempts by armed opponents of the strike to break down the authority of the strike. Committee over its own members. We had no violence in Seattle and no revolution. The fact That fact should prove that neither the strike committee nor the rank and file of the workers ever intended revolution. By transforming disruption into transcending capitalist social relations, a general strike could provoke a revolution without the need for workers to take up arms under certain conditions. A general strike that places the means of production in the hands of the community and subordinates the economy to direct democratic worker control can only only succeed in the long run if the strike is spread throughout a broad geographic area, expanded into other critical sectors of society, and the economy, and carries broad support among the population. Without such Oh, we have a phone call. Mutiny Radio. Uh,
5: Yeah. Uh, Are you doing your interview yet?
4: Hi, Gail. Oh yeah, we already had the interview. How are you doing?
5: I'm in a boarding care. Oh, okay. And um, and it's not my phone. They let me use it, but you know they don't want me to keep it all the time. I see. So anyway, so let me see. So the guy got mad at me because I can see he was frustrated because he used to be pretty big. in my From what I heard, he used to open for bigger celebrities, and now he's back doing open mics. You know. So I guess he was frustrated that he wasn't progressing in his career. I mean, everyone has their own opinion. So he got very enraged at me and said, shut up, I give you the general idea. He said he's going to take a pin and stab me in the neck and kill me. Oh no. (laughs) And he said, if you think I'm scared of going to jail or whatever, I'm not. So another comedian stepped in and was protecting me and he told him, do you want to die for this woman? (laughs) So and I didn't want no one fighting over me Uh I told the guy who was helping me I appreciated it but I don't want he said well he's not gonna get hurt you know the other guy will be able to take care of the other guy I said well I don't want him to get hurt either you know that's my premise that people think comedy is a big happy family no I don't think so no you know I think it's pretty much Cutthroat Yeah and it And another be. guy Thought I wanted to Beat him up So maybe he wanted me To get beat up Oof. And I got thrown Out of the places Man <laughs> So I don't know uh, Did you interview This guy In uh, person Or over the phone
4: uh, Over the phone
5: <sighs> Yeah well, how does he Find uh, His comedy Experience Does he find that, uh, People are pretty much Stabs in the back Cutthroat Want to stab you in the neck with a pen?
4: Um, that didn't really come up in the interview. He was talking more about a film that he just produced and, and wrote and started. Oh yeah, you gotta
5: get out there and promote the film.
4: Yeah, but he's he's toured a lot. I mean, he's been doing comedy for two decades, over two decades, and he's you yeah, know yeah, he's toured around just the country seen
5: recently. You know, Tiffany Haddish. Uh huh. She was on Dr. Haas. Okay. And she was talking about how she's been working on it since 1997. Wow. And Hollywood didn't recognize her until 2017
4: Yeah, yeah, wow
5: So a lot of times People see someone that becomes famous And they think, oh, they're overnight sensation.
4: People work a really long time And they
5: start talking to them Mm -hmm. And they find out they've been working years and years on it Oh yeah I've been fooling around trying to get somewhere At least since the 80s Oh wow You know uh, maybe even before that, but in the late '80s, this guy who was was an actor from the '50s and maybe even back further, which I seen him in an Alan Ladd movie. Uh huh. I don't know if you know Alan Ladd.
4: And uh, I know the name. And he
5: talked me up and got me. Uh, the casting ladies to cast me in background for Midnight Caller.
4: Uh huh.
5: Are you familiar with that one?
4: Uh, sounds familiar.
5: Well, it was a series they filmed in San Francisco for like three or four years. Anyway, so you see, he got me in that way. But then I realized that that I'm not going to be getting any lines. And you know how I like to talk. Yes. So I kind of wasn't so much interested in that anymore. I know this other guy. He has a big, long sheet of paper of all the things he's been in, in movies and TV series. But as I understand, he never got a line,
6: uh-huh.
5: and I want to talk, talk, talk. So um, well, him and another guy was on a Robin Williams film doing background, and they picked his friend out to have lines, uh-huh. to play a security guard, and they gave him lines, and they gave him a dialect coach and everything. Wow. So. Ah, Show business is not easy. No, it's... And I'm still it, trying to make the score.
4: It is not. No, it's a lot of a lot but, of hard but work. I
5: like to make a... I mean, I like to act up, you know. Everyone always says, I'm a drama queen. So where are you going with your deal? Do you do it just for fun or do you want to get somewhere?
4: Um, I like to be able to create work that's inspiring and challenges the status quo. And anything I can do that's related to that um, I think on, is great. On.
5: Uh, yeah, because I also found out that uh, my hearing is going. Oh. So what do you want to do? How long have you been doing this show? Uh,
4: the radio show I've been doing for over five years, but I've been, I mean, I started doing theater when I was in high school, and I did comedy for quite a while. I did improv for a while. So I've been, you know, involved in the performing arts for uh, more, uh, more of my life than not, so... Almost but you 20... haven't made
5: the score, as I call it.
4: No. I mean, I'm able to sometimes I get paid gigs, which is helpful, but it also just depends on what you consider the score.
5: My score is being a work that act making a pretty good amount of money. Yeah. I'm not talking to Mansionville. Sure. But, you know, they always say the people in the show is there's just a small percentage at the top, Sure. and don't lie at the bottom, you know?
4: Right, right.
5: really don't make a living at it.
4: Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, it's an unpredictable business, too. So you might have good years and now not you, so good years.
5: Well, they go up and down. Yes, I yeah. was watching work Fields, and she was saying that <clears throat> she went into other things when there was a little acting work or whatever available. She did this. She went and wrote books, and she did this. And, you know, it's like people say it's up and down, up and down. Yes. You know, like John Travolta was a big star, and then he went down, then he went back up. Right, right. And uh, what? Now Brian Cranston, the guy uh, that was cooking up the Met or whatever. Yeah, yeah. finally hit the big time. I forget what was that sh- show name. Uh, Breaking Bad. Yeah. Now, he was in it for many, many years, and he didn't get famous into that, I guess.
4: Well, yeah, he was in you know, Malcolm was in the Middle Steinfeld. before that, but, yeah.
5: And, uh, his father was an actor, too. hmm He never much got anywhere. He was in the movie with the giant grasshoppers.
4: Oh, that sounds interesting.
5: But he never made no progress. Yeah. I mean, he got, you know, you know he didn't hit the big time. So I haven't given up Yeah, I just... I have a little setback. Sure. I was making a little progress in this comedy thing. Uh huh. You know, people would let me go do their shows. I wasn't making no money, but I was getting experience. Yeah. You know, I was figuring. And then someone wrote me up in the San Francisco Weekly, a a And, you know, then my arthritis got really bad. Uh huh. I mean, it took me like 10 years. To come up with something really disgusting and interesting, the thing I call the pussy story. Uh huh. And and you can't do a whole act on one little thing. No. I mean, of course, and I had the one about, um, I you know I make up ridiculous stories that obviously no one, if I think these are real, but I try to sell them like they're. Like I'm sincere. Like if I can convince you, this crap is real. Mm-hmm. So then my arthritis got really bad, um, and that's what's. And then we, oh, you want to hear a sad story?
4: Um, now, quick, we've got to go back to the rest of the show. But if you've got like oh, one minute, oh yeah, okay.
5: Yeah. I. So it's so disgusting. My health. I want to tell you anyway. Uh, but anyway, I haven't given up. Yeah, I'm still trying to make the score. But thanks for the time.
4: Sure. Thanks for calling in, Gail. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. That was sweet, Gail. Again, our most frequent caller to the show. we have got a couple more stories for you. I do want to finish up with the story from Roar Magazine about the general strike in Seattle from 1919. And then we'll take a break and then get back into some more news. Uh, as the Seattle Union Record dem- uh, documented, uh, elites were the only were the only ones prepared and willing to use violence as a tactic. When the GSC called off the general strike, elites had aligned police, national guard, military, vigilante forces, and the AFL leadership against the worker-controlled free city. What ultimately doomed the general strike was the elites' threat of t- threat to use force, Lim- limited to a single city and surrounded by the forces of repression. The strikers had little chance to maintain to main their control over the city. The strikers couldn't disarm local elites, expropriate and redistribute their property, or circulate their struggle beyond Seattle. When the forces of repression assembled outside Seattle, there was no show of mass popular support to counter it. Seattle was a revolutionary island in an ocean of repression. The Seattle General Strike ultimately failed because it was paralyzed between demobilization and de-escalation. On the one hand, and a generalization and escalation of the strike into a revolutionary situation on the other. The tactical escalation to a general strike was sufficient to force elites to temporarily cede control, but insufficient to sustain or expand it. Presented with the choice between an intensification of tactics into the unknown or a de-escalation to extract concessions, in other words, between reform or revolution, the strikers opted for de-escalation. With the storm clouds of repression blanketing over the city, excuse me, over the country, and the wartime strike wave over, they decided to end their strike to avoid the threat of violence. Nonetheless, while the Seattle strike lasted for only five days, it provided a glimpse of the possibility for workers to take control and self manage a major U.S. city. Wow. I didn't know any of that. So, it was super informative, and I'm sure, and it seemed pretty clear from the article that there are plenty of other strikes that also happened around that time, and have happened before and since. So, really important to, you know, find that information, see what works, what doesn't work, and what we can do in the future to get something like that going again. Okay, I think it's time for a music break. Um random song. I heard this the other day in Gro- Grocery Outlet. I think I don't really, don't really do plugs on the show for any businesses for the most part. I do have to say Grocery Outlet, uh, they play pretty good music there and they played uh, Milgram's 37 by Peter Gabriel a few months ago. And I was like, that's incredible. And because sometimes stores you go in, like I don't like to shop. It's not my thing. Uh, but groceries are something that I kind of need to get on a regular basis. And occasionally one will be in a store and they'll play music that I feel can be really, uh, just kind of either cheesy or just vapid and then occasionally there's a place like russrella that plays music that's uh pretty rocking and or has a message anyway uh i heard this song so i thought it would be good to share with you all and we'll be back in a bit stay tuned
12: For me, protection is all around Protection stands beside me For this is sacred ground Speak good things into being Abundance is all around
4: Welcome back to the Clear Review. That was Monica McIntyre with Conjurer. And coming up next has a new story that was happened out of New York. Uh, this story is from Gothamist. You can find it at Gothamist.com. Uh, also providing a trigger warning before, uh, didn't really provide it at the beginning of the show, but wanted to now before this story, uh, guards pepper spray protesters at Brooklyn jail where inmates went without heat for a week. And this was written by Steven Nesson, uh, for WNYC news. And this came out on February 4th after more than a week without heat and power conditions at the metropolitan detention center in Brooklyn showed signs of improvement on Sunday evening, but not for everyone. Emergency generators are on and heat has been restored to parts of the federal jail. But public officials and lawyers who toured the facility again Sunday told reporters not everyone has heat and some inmates are going without their medication. NBC New York reports that lights were seen turning on at the facility after 6.30 p.m. For the past week, many inmates have been on lockdown in cells without electricity or heat during days of bitter cold. How is that? We live in a third world country? The mother of one inmate, Yvonne Murchison, asked, Where's the president on this? He's worrying about the wrong issue. Where's he on this? Everyone in there is not guilty, and even if they were, they're human beings. Murchison's son, Desmond, who she says had been awaiting trial for a year at the Sunset Park Jail, shouted to his mother through metal grates on Sunday. Murchison then led a group of protesters into the building and were met by guards who used pepper spray. Several protesters came running out minutes later to cover their faces in water and milk. An NYPD spokesman said no arrests were made. And they include video here as well. (sighs) Lawyers meeting with clients reported coughing fits from everyone in the meeting room. One federal defender, Amanda David, said that in the four and a half years of doing this work, she's never seen conditions this bad. It is very apparent that there is a massive failure of caring here, a massive failure of... Proper supervision, a massive failure of planning, Congressman Gerald Nadler said after touring several floors on Sunday. Nather said the warden told him power would be restored by noon on Monday. Con Edison was reportedly waiting for a missing component to arrive Monday morning, and then full power could be restored. Nather said there was heat in several parts of the building, but many cells remained frigid. He said the warden told him 600 blankets from the city had been distributed, but city councilman Brad Lander, who was also on the tour, said he didn't see any blankets in any of the cells they visited. And they share a tweet from uh Scott Herchinger as well they have video footage as well <sighs> Nadler said he's spoken with the acting director of the Bureau of Prisons, who seemed to be acting with more urgency after the protest began last Friday. The NYCLU is calling on the Bureau of Prisons to allow family and legal visits immediately. Today's confrontation between the Bureau of Prisons and family members of police jailed at MDC highlights the desperate need to address the dangerous, inhumane, and unlawful conditions inside the facility, Executive Director Donna Lieberman said in a statement. This has gone on for far too long the BOP must act immediately to get the heat and lights back on to restore family and legal visits and resume programming within the facility. It is essential that BOP ensure that no detainee be subjected to retaliation for peace of, for peacefully protesting this inhumane treatment. Wynne Hornbuckle, the Deputy Director of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice, issued a statement of, on Monday morning saying, the electrical power at the Bureau of Prisons BOP facility at MDC Brooklyn was restored at approximately 6.30 p.m. Sunday evening. With the heat and hot water operational and the restoration of electrical power, the facility can now begin to return to regular operations. In the coming days, the department will work with the Bureau of Prisons to examine what happened and ensure the facility has the power, heat, and backup systems in place to prevent the problem from reoccurring. Governor Andrew Cuomo is also calling for a full investigation into what is happening at the facility. Today I'm calling on the US Department of Justice to immediately investigate the circumstances at the Metropolitan Detention Center. New York State stands to stands ready to provide any support necessary to keep the heat, hot water, and electricity running at the center and augment the investigation into those responsible for this mess. Cuomo wrote in a statement. There was an update just before 7 p.m. Councilmember Brad Lander tweeted that the power had been fully restored at MDC. Lander told Gothamist that he had spoken to the warden, who also confirmed that the power was running again. Well, one solution, in my opinion, would be to abolish prisons, and that way none of this would have happened in the first place if everyone had secure housing. Okay, taking another quick music break and then we'll be back to finish up the show. Thanks again for uh, listening in to the weekly review. We're here at Mutiny Radio, and again, there are shows here every day of the week. So stay tuned and we'll be back in a bit. one more story for you. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up next is Women's Magazine with Global Val coming in at 2 p.m. This is just a a brief story we have here. Um, Transgender woman alleges attack by gay men outside West Hollywood Bar. And this came out on February 7th. And you can find this at wehoville.com transgender woman has alleged that she was assaulted by five gay men on Saturday night outside a bar in West Hollywood. Alba Martinez has created a GoFundMe account to raise money to help cover her basic costs, which she describes as rent, groceries, and utilities, as well as medical costs, first aid supplies, mental health prescriptions, medications, and pepper spray, and fixing my phone. In her GoFundMe post, Martinez said the attack occurred outside a gay bar. And she says, as a trans woman of color, there are virtually no spaces where I am safe, and getting ganged up on by five gay men in West Hollywood at the supposed gay capital of LA, was absolutely terrifying, she wrote. I was violently attacked in the face, bruised and cut up, and left unconscious in a dark alleyway. As of publication, Martinez has raised $8,799, far exceeding her $3,500 goal. WeHoVille, which is the name of the publication, has reached out to her via email, but has yet to receive a response. Uh, And she says, I haven't had much time to emotionally process what has happened in this traumatic event. Uh, She wrote on her GoFundMe page, Behind the straight faces and joking demeanor I carry around when dealing with trauma. This time I found myself crying whenever I had even a minute alone to myself. The tears would come down a straight path, but I'd be silent and my reactions were limited to a dead stare at nothing. I feel more empty than ever before. It's a lonesome feeling that I've been suffering through a lot lately. I feel pressured to put on a front whenever things get extra tough for me and my experience from being a trans woman, specifically of color. People consistently tell me to accept this reality, but do not take into consideration how my reality and all of these experiences have affected me and my mental health. I'm taking the time to describe my own narrative to the people closest to me reading this. To be as openly honest and vulnerable as I can, I was forced to withdraw from UCLA due to my mental health getting out of control. Because of this, I am no longer receiving the financial aid I had been stretching out until now. As a consequence of coming out and preserving my gender, or excuse me, as pre- and presenting my gender as I feel most comfortable, I have been subject to daily harassment. Every day when I walk out of my front door, I experience some form of harassment, whether social, emotional, or sexual. I literally cannot be outside for more than fifteen minutes without experiencing someone's rude, transphobic commentary or sexual harassment, and that has greatly impacted my mental health. And more importantly, my ability to feel safe in this world. My social anxiety has increased greatly as a result of all these daily microaggressions, and it has made it that much more difficult to secure a decent job, handle regular chores, and or leading to lead a fulfilling life. Whew. So, unfortunately, these stories are all too common, and I'm sending uh, lots of love out to Alba Martinez and all the folks who face this on a on a daily basis and just how fucking horrifying it is that some folks are unable to feel safe in the world and i'll provide a a link here that we can share on the facebook page now it's up to nine over a little over nine thousand dollars it's uh gofundme um forward slash excuse me i'm just gonna make this a little bit larger so i can see it looks like forward slash F forward slash for Alba. And I'll show that right now on the Facebook webpage. So if you go to facebook.com forward slash weekly rev, I am right about to share this GoFundMe. So please, if you're able to please donate and also please show up for the the trans folks in your lives. (sighs) All right. Well, time to wrap up the program Uh, coming up. At 2 p.m. will be Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Common Thread Collective with Global Val and Diamond Dave. And there's comedy tonight at the station and a lot more shows here every day of the week. So please do continue listening in to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. This is Roman. I'll be back next Friday. Uh, Shahid Buttar will be on our guest on the program. Looking forward to talking to Shahid. And ah, yes, lots to talk about. So I'm going to wrap up here, play some more music and get ready for the next show to come in. Thanks again, everyone for listening. Thank you. Big thank you to Samson McCormick for calling in. And again, you can check out the film, A Different Direction, which is coming up the exclusive premiere February 16th at the Oakland LGBTQ Center at 7 p.m. And let's find some good music to to take us out uh, of the program today and we'll be back next week. Take care, everybody.
10: Don't you know we're talking about a revolution? It sounds like a whisper. Don't you know we're talking about a revolution? It sounds like a whisper. While they Standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know, talking about a revolution Sounds we are people gonna rise up Get their yeah. We're gonna rise up and take what's there The doorsteps of the armies of salvation Wasting time In the unemployment lines Sitting around Waiting for a promotion Don't you know Talking about a real revolution Sounds
3: the internet ocean has to offer ya. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face mcrat. Asiento. <laughs> Aciento. Take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Brian. Meet friends for a drink.
7: For a burger, Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. serve 2 p.m to 10 p.m daily and until 11 p.m on wednesday thursday and friday counteroffer is located inside bender's bar and grill at 806 south van s be sure to tell them mutiny sent you counteroffer baby everybody should listen to
12: mutiny radio at mutinyradio.fm it's a great place to listen to crazy things
13: until next time, I hope you're enjoying your view. Yes. Bye. Bye. Yep. That kind of sucked balls.
11: Good evening, there, my friends, here at mutinyradio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that time... Ma'am.
2: Mm-mm. that tastes so good it's it's bug House square it's tuesday at six o'clock damn that's loud huh
10: <laughs> kind of scared myself have you seen that vigilante man have you seen that vigilante man? Have you seen that vigilante man? I've been hearing his name all over the land. Hey, this week on Bug House Square, well,
7: huge what plans, big plans.
10: Um, I—it's just—it's
7: really super
1: complicated, so I can't get into it right now. You just have to just sit back and enjoy.
10: This is meaty radio this is bug house square welcome a vigilante man Rainy night down in the engine